Good morning, church. Our names are Molly and Eric Schluter, and we are delighted to be here today as Covenant Partners. Uh, in our mor- or This morning in particular, we're going to continue our worship uh, of the Lord by studying Genesis. In our study, we'll see Jesus as the true king over everything. He's the only king who can take our sin and give us grace and the righteousness we need to participate in a relationship with our living God. All right, please join in reading Genesis 14, 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkal, and Mamre take their share. Now please join me in the call and response. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I add my greetings to those you've already heard and invite you to keep this passage open. It's in your bulletin on the other side of the reading. You'll find a place to take notes if you want to write down some of the passages we'll refer to. Uh, if you would rather read in a Bible and you don't have one, we have Bibles on the pew rack in front of you, or if you're on the front row, underneath, there's a Bible there. Uh, there you go. Uh, or you can just um, uh, use your phone if you want. Here's the point of this time together. Uh, it's to get the Word of God into our hearts. We worship the living God who, by the power of His Spirit, uses this Word to conform us more into the image of God. And as children of God, we leave worship to more faithfully and fruitfully serve and to live our lives for the glory of God. That's why we approach this text. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, we want to invite you. We're glad you're here. really want to encourage you to uh, join us in seeing the true King Jesus that is revealed in this passage. But first, let me give you a little bit of context. We're in a series on the patriarchs. Right now we're looking at the life of Abram, uh, and we're at an important place of revelation. Next week we're going to look at Genesis 15, where Abram cuts a covenant with the Lord. It's hugely significant passage for all of redemptive history, but today we're sitting in Romans 14. You can read ahead if you want. I know we got some overachievers out there. You can read Genesis 15 next week. This week we're staying in chapter 14. The narrative we've been in for the past few weeks, it really fits together well. God called Abram in chapter 12, and he promised, even though Abram was old, Paul calls him so old he was as good as dead. 
Not a compliment. He was that old. His wife, barren, uh, God promised that they would have children and through their family that they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, that God would bless them and that they would be a blessing. Right after that scene, you'll remember that Abram had to flee with Sarai to Egypt because of a famine in the land of Canaan. And they went down there and immediately the self-centeredness, the idolatrous, fear-driven and faithless Abraham send his wife, Sarai, into harm's way, right into the harem. She could have been abused. She could have been impregnated by Pharaoh. She was not. We saw that God is sovereign to protect his promise. And ultimately, realizing that the promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we saw how Sarah's actions, this is important, were actually the way that God seals and secures his promise. That is through substitution. She gives her life for Abram's safety, just like Christ gives his life for our salvation. The substitutionary work of the way that God loves his people secures his promise. And when Abram sees that, he goes, we went with him back to the land of Canaan. And you remember his surrendering. He surrendered to, in response to substitution. He surrendered to the control of the Lord he surrendered, uh, he seated, uh, surrendered calling on the name of the Lord and worshiping him, and he surrendered by living from the covenant promises of the Lord. This week, as we come to this passage, we're going to see how surrender, a right response to the substitutionary love of our covenant God, how that is fueled when we see the generosity of the true king, Jesus and he invites us to come partake of his beneficial rule and reign. Now, Abram, in this passage, our context, Abram's actually revealed as a king himself. And I know what you're saying. You say, Mitchell, the sermon's titled, Two Kings and the Real King, and now you're calling Abraham king. That's four kings. And if you're like me, you're not good with numbers, you're under the pressure, there's no math involved in the sermon, I get it. But Abram's just represented as a king. It's important to understand that because in this passage, in Genesis 14, the word king is mentioned 28 times. It's obviously important. And the scene is one of international conflict. We have five kings from Canaan. We have five, four kings from Mesopotamia. And they're all warring. And in the process of their battling, they took Abram's nephew Lot because they defeated the king of Solomon, or the king of Sodom. Excuse me, that was a mistake. And then in verse fourteen, we see that that one person survived, and they went to Abram. And Abram got together three hundred and eighteen trained men from from his posse. I mean, three hundred eighteen trained men. That, that's pretty cool. Can we just pause and appreciate that he had 318 trained men that were able to go down? You're looking at me like you have more than that. Do you? It's unbelievable. This guy was so blessed, so powerful, and he's presented as a king because he goes down and he defeats all the other kings that were battling. And where we pick up is when he comes out. He has the bounty all the resources from all of these kings that were warning, warring, and this adds to the bounty that he had already taken out of Egypt. So, some of you, as we head in this passage, you might be disappointed because I've mentioned a lot of kings, and I haven't mentioned King Antonio or El Rey Feo. I know, I know. Those are important kings to us who are in San Antonio. 
but they're not real kings. We're going to talk about the true king, Jesus. And first, we're going to look at the two kings of this passage. First, the giving king, Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. Look down with me uh, in 17. You see, after his return, this is Abram, from the defeat of Cheddar Luomer, what a great name, and the kings who were with him, look at this, it says, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Now, it's important to note that the king of Sodom is introduced, but nothing is said about it. Immediately, the, the focus of the camera in this scene goes to verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High, and he blessed Abram. The king of Sodom comes out. And you'll remember what is said about Sodom. We were introduced to Sodom in chapter 13, and it was described as this, a wicked place with wicked people. We should draw from that description a description of the king. He comes out, but Melchizedek brings out. Melchizedek is this mysterious character all throughout Scripture, He's got no history, no genealogy that, that, that we can identify him with, and he just kind of disappears. But by virtue of his name, we know that he would be the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That, that is the connection that the psalmist makes in Psalm 76, verse 2. His name definitely means the king of righteousness. That's what Hebrews 7 says, Hebrews 7 too. We'll read it in a minute. This mysterious king is, is supremely significant because he will become a paradigm in Scripture of the true king, Jesus Christ, who is the priest. And, and you see here, Jesus is the priest of priests, but Melchizedek is described, the king of Salem, he was a priest of the most high God. The description is actually very, very significant. It's a description that is mentioned three times of the Lord, the most high God. God himself is the one who is God of gods and Lord of lords. It's repeated in 16, 17, and 18. And it's significant because in a land that included a people in a place like Sodom and, and multiple other kings in their kingdoms. They all had different gods that they worshipped. And when Melchizedek comes out, the king of Salem, and he's introduced as a priest to the Most High God, and then he gives a blessing from the Most High God, and Abraham later acknowledges that his blessing comes through the priest from the Most High God, we are to surmise that God himself is the highest God, the most God of the most gods of all the gods. He is Yahweh, and Melchizedek is his mediator. How does he mediate? Two ways. First, he brings out a banquet. Second, he gives a blessing. First, the banquet. The king of Sodom came out, but Melchizedek, king of Salem, he brings out. What does he bring out? He brings out bread and a cup. Of course, we see the direct symbolism and trajectory of the true king of peace who mediates his blessings through the bread and cup of the new covenant. 
It is significant, but the language here, it takes us to different parts of the New Testament and actually can be inferred and understood as a banquet that this king of Salem honors the king figure of Abraham with a banquet of a king. You can see this language used uh, in 2 Samuel 17, 27, 29, Proverbs 9, and other places. The Lord, the Most High, Most High, Most High God, is giving a banquet for Abram. Now, the connection will be made deeper in a moment. But the first time the sacramental supper is served is by Melchizedek to Abram. And why did he do it? As a mediation of blessing. Look at verse 19. As soon as Melchizedek gives him the the bread and the wine, it says that he blessed him. He blessed Abraham, uh, blessed Abram. He said, blessed be Abram by God the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. This blessing, this word should grab your attention because from the beginning, God has promised to bless Abram and make him a blessing to the nations. Even though Abram has been unfaithful, even though Abram has been selfish, even though Abram has been idolatrous of his own comfort, God is faithful because when God makes a promise and guarantees by his word, he keeps it. And he offers Abram blessing. Blessing through participating in the king's banquets, despite Abram's performance. What's the response of this giving king to the banquet of the kingdom that includes the blessing? It's worship. Do you see what Abram does in the following uh, phrase right after the blessing? It says, And Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. You see, when when the people of God encounter the blessing of God through the banquet of God, we are led to be generous and worship the living God with the material wealth and the bounty that he has given us. I bring this up because it's an important litmus test for us to diagnose our own hearts, to look at how we relate to wealth, in a world that's at war, most significantly, a war for your heart. Are we marked by worship with our wealth? Where we instinctively respond to encountering the living God by laying before his throne his tithes, his tithes, and our offerings above that 10%. This is a normal thing for God's people. We see it in, Jacob, uh, in Abraham's grandson. You remember Abraham and Sarah, they ended up having the promised child, Isaac, and Isaac married Rebekah. They too had trouble getting pregnant, and they ended up having twins. I don't think they had any IV treatments or anything, a fertility issue, but they had twins. And the youngest twin was Jacob, and Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a grabber. And Jacob stole the birthright of his brother. He deceived him. And Jacob stole the blessing of his brother, deceiving Isaac. And what happens when when Jacob is on the run for his life? He gets to a place called Bethel, where he calls it Bethel. 
He lays his head on a stone, and there he encounters the living God. You remember the story of Jacob's ladder? When he's in a dream, a rock is his pillow, and angels are ascending and descending down. Heaven meets the heart of the deceiver, and he is transformed from being a grabber into a giver. Jacob is described as a man who promises God, though he has nothing, not even a bride price for his eventual wife, Rachel. He has to work for it. He has nothing, but he promises the Lord, I will give you a tenth of everything. That's in Genesis 28, 20 to 22. You see, gratitude and worship through generosity comes from a heart that's been changed by encountering God, experiencing the blessings of God mediated through the priests of God. Now, we love this kind of story. Uh, you remember the story Les Miserables by Victor Hugo? You remember this? Or if you're a student studying it, maybe you call it Les Miserables? No. I don't know. Some of you do. But it's about a criminal. He's freed. <laughs> I just saw one of y'all's face. You were surprised. Like, oh, it's really Les Miserables? Okay, yeah. There we go. So it's about this criminal named Jean Valjean who was released from prison. And he's a hardened criminal who the introduction to the whole story is he's a thief. He had stolen bread, and he encounters a priest, and he steals silver from the priest. But what happens when the police catch him and bring him back to this priest who's actually a bishop? The priest showers him with grace. He mediates blessings of God through material wealth, and he says to Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks as well. And when this hardened criminal who spent his life grabbing encounters a blessing that comes through this priest, he's a bishop, then he is changed. He becomes not a grabber but a giver. He becomes extremely benevolent. And the whole rest of the story is about the generosity and the compassion of this man who was formerly a grabber. And he ends up dedicating himself to helping people in need because he encountered grace. You know, we celebrate this type of narrative because it's something we long to see in society. And if you're like me, you become weary of all the hard headlines of our world. Like the context of this passage, our world is torn apart by war. Just like Abraham came from the international conflict of all these tribal warfares, so too we are weary from the the stage of the world at war. In the promises of God, the banquet that God gives us, the, the living King, Jesus Christ, who is our priest, yes, you can come and feast on his grace, but yes, he reminds you that the headlines of heaven are already a reality, even in the heartache of the headlines of our world. We come in with sorrow. We, we are weary from all the death, but, but Jesus wants you to feast on his life and how he is working, how he is demonstrating that what the, he's taking what the enemy intends for evil and he's making it good, how he is demonstrating that the, 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 the difficulty for the saints are being used by his sovereign grace for the good of those who love him and the glory of his name, that he rules over all of those things. I was reminded this week, just the banquet of God's faithfulness in just a few ways. I could tell you more. After, I, after the first service, I shared these and I had multiple people say, well, you should have talked about how you saw God working here. 
And it's right, God's working everywhere, but we forget the banquet of the rule of the king in a world at war. It looks like this. We had somebody from our congregation who's serving in the military over in Germany that was able to bring medical help and needed surgery to victims of the attack at Tower 12. In the midst of war and casualties, God is bringing healing. You know, we had a tremendous, we always have tremendous stories coming out of right underneath you in the Kingdom Restoration Lab. And last week, we had this phenomenal story of of a woman who came in devastated by a surprise pregnancy. And through talking with our ministry partner down there, through realizing that she wasn't alone, she was encouraged by the the mentor to, to go try to find hope and connection with the community of the body of Christ. She was very intimidated, didn't want to come to a big church like this with a big building, lots of people. So she was referred to one of our church planting partners. And there, she encountered life. She encountered hope. And she moved from being surprised and wanting to eliminate the surprise to rejoicing and seeing that there's actually a greater opportunity in keeping the life that's given to her. It's phenomenal that the kingdom network that is in our city through this church, God is using to to bring a banquet of fruitfulness of life and hope and joy. And I could go on and on. This picture right here, this is from one of our church planning partners, a different one from ACC downtown. There's not a picture there. I thought there was a picture there. I look a little dumb. It's okay. It's not the first time. It's not the first time. Okay. But the picture you don't see is of our ministry, our church planning partner, ACC downtown. Their largest service they ever had was last Sunday where they baptized four new Christians. I'm telling you, the headlines of heaven are greater. God's given life. We got another church planning partner. I got to tell this story because I was listening to one of their sermons. It's Ryan Azaro. He's a tremendous communicator. Their church last week was receiving their four first members. They had gone through all this training, all this stuff. He was so moved. He just had to stop and put on pause. And in an emotional plea, he celebrated with all his people the goodness of God and the power of the gospel for about 15 or 20 minutes, just celebrating the work of God. And I heard that and I was reminded that our God's alive, that he is working. And for all who want to come, you can feast on his goodness by feasting on himself and the hope that he gives through his work and his word. God is working and bringing peace even in a world of war. Do you believe it? It's true. I'm glad at least three of you know. But it's important for us to understand that this king of Salem, the king of peace, who is the king of righteousness, he is mediating the blessings of God with a banquet in a way that points to Christ. In Scripture itself makes this connection. Now, I'm going to try this again. Look with me at the verse that's on the screen. Yes! This is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. From For this Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem, priest of the Most High, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abram, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is the first, this is Melchizedek, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is a giving king. And this is directly contrasted in our passage with the king of Sodom, who is a taking king. This is our second point. The king of Salem, you remember he brings out the banquet. He brings out bread and cup. The king of Sodom, he comes out in verse 17. He comes out and this word is is used in a confrontational way and keep perspective. His kingdom, his people had just been conquered by a whole another set of kings and then they were conquered by Abram. And he's got the gall to come out as if he has any authority at all to give an imperative to Abram, the king of Salem. He blesses Abram. He says, in fruitfulness, the promises of God, the most high, but the the king of Sodom, look what he does. And this is really unbelievable. If you look at verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Give me the persons. He comes out with an imperative, a command. The arrogance, the lack of authority that he claims, the pride And he does it in such a deceitful way. He says, keep all the goods. Keep the materials. Give me the life. Give me the people. We can't help but hear echoes of this taking king, this self-centered king. When Jesus describes the enemy in John 10.10 as one who is a thief that has come to take and destroy We can't help but realize that when Paul is talking about the devil in 2 Corinthians 11, that he's a deceiver that describes himself, disguises himself as an angel of light. We need to be a people who join the Apostle Peter in being very, very alert because the devil is seeking to devour and destroy. Notice the deceit. Keep the goods for yourself. Promising material wealth, promising prosperity, promising comfort. Keep it. Just give me the people. Give me the life. You see, that's what the taking enemy, wicked king wants. Give me life so that he can rule over it in death. Would Abraham, would he surrender Lot and his family for fortune? No, because Abram is determined. We see it in the passage. He refuses to have any way, any shape, any form that the king of Sodom could claim any credit for his kingdom. He's not even willing to take a strap of his sandal because he has been blessed by, quote, the most high God who is the possessor of all of earth. You see, friends, We need to understand the parallels that this king of Sodom who points to the devil who comes to destroy and to take that wants life so that he can take life and make it wicked in a world at war. He has ways that we are in a world of competing kings that are demanding to take things from us. 
And if you don't believe you're in a world at war, then you've fallen into the first step of his strategy by not believing that there is any conflict for the turf of your heart. There is. And he'll give you the possessions. He'll give you the stuff. He just wants your life. Think about the ways that we, without even realizing it, surrender to the authority of the competing kings of our world where we give things that only God deserves. Our full focus, our sense of security, our sense of significance and identity, places of escape and entertainment where we look for life and for answers. The kings of our culture use things like streaming platforms, Netflix, Hulu, Prime, or social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, or X, TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook. You don't think that's a competing king? Well, they're good things. You can use them for great things, but how much time have you devoted to those things compared to, I mean, how much time literally have they taken from you compared to the life that Jesus wants you to give in time with him? Just diagnose your heart. Think about the, the sports leagues whereby we get so much entertainment. I love them. I love I went to the Spurs game last Saturday night. I watched the Vols win last night. I love them. I love the NBA, NFL, NCAA. But think about the amount of money they have taken from us in our culture. Or think about the tech giants of our world, the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts. Think about where our hearts turn for answers before turning to the living God. You see, when our attention is arrested, when our sense of security is, is taken and placed on these platforms, our sense of identity, friends, we have got to examine our hearts to see if we are falling into subjugation of the king of Sodom. This is not to say that the king of righteousness and the king of peace cannot use these places to advance his kingdom. He has and he will. It is to say that if you are engaging all of these platforms, all of these media giants, all of, all of these tech giants, if you are doing so without examining your heart to see if you are actually worshiping in an idolatrous way and you're being deceived and having life taken from you while you're receiving all the possessions that they want to deceive you with, if you're not examining your heart, you need to wake up. We have the opportunity to receive the blessings of the true King, Jesus. Jesus knows that the battle for loyalty is here. And that's why he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And that's why he promises that when we put our faith in him, when he is our king, he gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh in a new spirit that's put within us. You see, the true king, and this is our third point, Jesus, we're going right to the table. He's the only king that can take in a way that gives you life so that you can take his blessing. What do you mean by that? You see, Jesus takes the sin of his people. Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve for our sin and rebellion against God. Jesus takes the death that we deserve so that from him we can take forgiveness. We can take life. 
We can take the Spirit. We can receive His blessings. Two ways that I want to celebrate this as we head into this table quoting two men from long ago. The first is Thomas Brooks. He was a a Puritan. He, he was with a place called Apostles Church in London in the early 1600s. He's got a prayer that is in a prayer book called Piercing Heaven, an unbelievable Puritan prayer book. I love it. I love this language of taking so that we, Jesus taking so he can give to us and us taking from him so we can receive his blessing. In his prayer, he writes, it is the mercy of Jesus that is given so we can receive pardon. It's the blood of Jesus that is given so that we can receive cleansing. It, are the, it is the merits of Jesus that are given so that we can be justified. It is the righteousness of Jesus that is given so that we can be clothed. It is the spirit of Jesus that is given so that we can be sealed and have comfort and be led. It is the grace of Jesus that is given to enrich us. It is the glory of Jesus that is given to us as a reward. Do you see it? There's only one true king who can truly give you what your heart is hungering for. And that is Jesus. And he can truly give it to you because he himself took from you that which was keeping you from relationship with the living God. It is why we come to this table. We don't come to this table because, well, we need a creative way to end our service once a month. We come to this table so God's people can be nourished by God's grace. Yes, Jesus is locally present at the right hand of the Father. He has ascended in heaven. But he is spiritually present in this meal so that you, from the banquet of God that is offered from the king himself, the king of righteousness and king of peace, can feast upon his blessings. Here's the way Calvin says it. We come and we give Jesus our unrighteousness so that here we can feast on his righteousness. We come and we give to Jesus our sin so that here, by his spirit, we can feast upon his grace. We come and we give Jesus our brokenness so that here we can feast on the wholeness and the blessing that comes to the finished work of Jesus. You see, Jesus took our mortality so that we can feast on his immortality. Jesus took poverty so that we can come and feast upon the richness of his grace and mercy. Jesus took the curse our sin deserves so that we can come and feast on the blessing of God that comes through the finished work of God. This table, it is not First Presbyterian Church's table. It's the King's table. It's Jesus's table. And if you know him for salvation and he is your king, he is your righteousness and he himself is the peace that you need mediated between you and God, then this is your table. If you're not a Christian, we are so glad you're here. But we ask you to refrain, refrain from participation. Receive a blessing from us, a prayer from us. But this is a family table where you can come and feast on the goodness and grace of Jesus. Let's pray together.